Thank you very much. Good morning to you all. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 6. I want to continue going through Daniel as well, and this time we're in chapter 6. And it's a familiar story, I think, for most of us. And it's one of those stories that um, is a great encouragement in different ways. It's always helpful to think about um, the purpose of the Bible itself, especially in light of what we're going to be talking about this morning. The Lord Jesus himself said, all of Scripture is about me. And so in one sense, when we look at our Bibles, we should think this book is about Jesus, and especially what it reveals to us about Jesus, that he is Lord of everything, Lord of all, and he's an able and willing Savior for you and for me. And that's what the good news is. And the Bible tells us that God basically calls us to trust his promises and to obey his commands, which is what love is. He calls us to trust and to love. And that's what we'll see in this passage today. And so the Bible tells us why we need Jesus. It tells us how we're to trust God and how we're to love people. And hopefully we'll see from Daniel 6 um, how uh, God wants to encourage us in that in our own lives today, in light of a story that happened a long time ago. One of the things that is helpful to think about in light of where we are as a country, we've grown up in a country that has wonderful freedoms. And for the most part, we don't suffer like other Christians suffer around the world. And it's very easy for us to be very comfortable as Christians. And we have to ask the question, what is really more important to us? Uh, Being comfortable or being courageous in the face of opposition, in the face of difficulties? In the uh, story of the Wizard of Oz, you've got the lion, you may remember, who wants courage. And it's an interesting story. If you think about the Wizard of Oz, you may have seen the movie, may have read the book. Um, I saw it when I was growing up, but I never really realized until I was an adult uh, really what the book was saying or what the movie was saying. I just saw it from a child's perspective and thought the monkeys were really scary and all that sort of thing. But basically the story is saying that the lion was looking for courage and he was looking to the wizard who seemed to be this terrible, awesome person, but was really just a little old man behind a curtain who was just trying to scare you, but he really wasn't anything to be afraid of and he really wasn't anyone who could really help you either. And so the lion needed to look within himself to see the courage that he already had and that he needed. And so the message of the story is, ultimately, it points to the idea that if we're looking to a great grand person uh, to help us, we're looking to something or someone who doesn't really exist. So it's really a statement against the idea of God. And it's really a call to us to see that we're really the only ones who can meet our own needs and solve our own problems. And so we just need to look within for the courage we need or the brains we need or whatever it is that we might need. Well, Daniel and the story of Daniel and the lion's den is very much about the fact that uh, no, we desperately need someone outside of ourselves to be able to have the courage we need and to do what we really need to do. Because I've often wondered um, what I would do if I was faced with a violent death not just going to bed and you know dying in my sleep, but actually facing a very violent death. How would I uh, respond to that? Especially if I could get out of it by simply saying something or doing something very simple. What would I do under those circumstances? Well, it's interesting. Uh, in Romans 15, Paul says, whatever was written in earlier times, including this story in Daniel, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what is encouragement? When you think about it, it's encouragement, which means to put courage in someone, to give someone the courage to face something, to do something, to be faithful, whatever it may be. And so Paul is saying the stories in the Old Testament, like what we find in Daniel chapter 6, are meant to... Give us hope, 
It's meant to instruct us, and it's meant to give us courage. God gives grace through the stories of other people finding grace to do what they could not do on their own. And so we want to think about that in light of the fact that 1 Peter tells us in chapter 4, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And that's the title for this message from Daniel 6 this morning is Entrusting Ourselves to God in Doing What is Right. That we are called to suffer one way or the other. Not everybody's called to suffer the same. Not everybody has to face the lions, but everybody has to face our own lions, so to speak. Our own um, trials and tribulations that challenge us, that threaten us, that threaten what's dear to us in various ways. And so it calls us to trust God in ways that we need to trust him and to love in ways that we need to love. Obviously, one of the things about doing what is right in the face of suffering is, first of all, am I willing to die to do what is right? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to face the possibility of dying to do what is right? But in our culture, another question is, what is right? Because a lot of people have come to the conclusion that there is really no right or wrong at least in terms of the big picture, there's maybe right and wrong for you and right and wrong for you. And it's kind of like the situation that somebody has talked about. There's a real problem with having different standards of right and wrong because you can imagine someone saying, I have my standard of right and wrong. You have your standard of right and wrong. And the other guy says, okay, grabs that guy's bicycle and runs off. And the guy says, hey, wait a minute. What are you doing? That's wrong. And the guy looks back at him as he rides away. Might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Stealing's not wrong for me, and I just took your bike. You ought to be okay with that. And so there's a real problem with thinking that there can be more than one standard of right and wrong. And what we see here in the story of Daniel is that Daniel is very much concerned about doing what's right, even when it could possibly mean him losing his life. And so let me read for us the first five verses as we kind of work our way through this chapter. And the first thing that I want us to see is that um, Daniel was very concerned about being different. And um, I don't know about you, but uh, it's always interesting to go to the mall or go to um, maybe downtown um, you know, Seal Beach or someplace, and you just, people watching is something that I like to do, and and it's always fun, and it's always interesting to see people that are dressed in unusual ways or might have unusual hairdos or, or whatever. And it's interesting to think about why is that person dressing the way they are, and, and why do they do their, their hair the way they do? It might have a big mohawk or something like that, and, and you look at that and you think, well, I wonder why that person does what he does. Now, for some people, maybe they would argue, I do it because I just like it that way. But in many cases, people do those kinds of things because they want to be different. They want to stand out in a crowd, and they do. They usually are very different. Is it wrong to want to be different? Not inherently. It's not inherently wrong to be different. But the question is, in what way are we wanting to be different, and in what way are we willing to be different? And in our society, there's a lot of pressure not to be different. There's a lot of pressure to just conform to what everybody else is doing or what everybody else says we should do. And that's what we see going on here is that um, Daniel had to choose to be different. And indeed, before he even got to the point of being challenged with the lions, he stood out. It says in verse 1, He seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or 
evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So it talks at the beginning about Darius. If you recall in chapter 5, the king of Babylon has been taken over by the Persians or the Medo-Persian empire. And Cyrus has appointed Darius to be over the kingdom of Babylon or the former kingdom of Babylon. And so now um, Daniel is in the administration of King Darius. And evidently he survived whatever happened with Belshazzar and who was murdered and the kingdom was transferred to the, um, the Persians. And so evidently uh, Darius heard something about Daniel, about his um, telling Belshazzar what was going to happen to him and that uh, the kingdom was going to be lost and turned over to the Persians. And so he ended up being also someone who's in the government, this pagan government under Darius. And it says in verse 3 that he had an extraordinary spirit or a remarkable spirit, which means he stood out in a crowd. It was like somebody walking through the mall that you look at and say, wow, that guy's different. And yet the question is, why was he different? It wasn't because he dressed differently. It wasn't because he had a different hairdo or anything like that. What it was, was that he lived his life according to a different standard. And that's what it says in verse 5 when it talks about the law of God. And so Daniel has an extraordinary spirit. He's unique. Uh, Darius, the king, says this guy is really helpful. He's sharp. And I think he's benefiting me. And so he decides, I think I'm going to elevate him to the highest place uh, in the kingdom, uh, except for my place, obviously. And the other people, the other um, administrators and leaders look at that and say, hey, this is, this is a bad thing. We don't want Daniel to be over us. We don't like him being elevated as he is. He's strange. He's different. And who knows what will happen if he gets into a place of authority above us. And so they, they decide we have to find a way to get him out. We have to oust him. And they look for grounds of accusation. It's kind of like when Jesus was on trial. It says they tried to find people who would accuse him and would agree together that he had said something wrong or done something wrong. And they couldn't find any grounds of accusation about against Jesus. And likewise, they could not find any grounds of accusation against Daniel. And that is very different in government. To find someone that if you dig deep enough, you can't find any dirt on them to get them out of office because that's what happens all the time. People run for office or, or people get dissatisfied with them. They try to find some dirt on them so that they can be ousted. And usually it's not too hard to find the the skeletons in the closet and those kinds of things, but they couldn't find anything on Daniel. But they were clever enough, cunning enough to say, you know what, but we know that he lives according to a standard that can be challenged. He lives according to a law that can be challenged by our own laws. So why don't we legislate some things that he can't in good conscience do? And then we can get rid of him. And so that's what they do. And so the question for all of us is to ask ourselves, do we want to be different? And if we want to be different, why? We should want to be different, number one. But we should want to be different in the most important of ways. We don't want to just be different because we want people to say, boy, that guy's different or she's different. But we want to be different in the sense that we live according to a standard that isn't common, that isn't often, not especially in our country, any more popular. And it's the idea that we actually take this book seriously, that we actually seek to trust what it says, to say what it says, and to do what it says, even if it costs us. And the temptation for everyone who claims to be a Christian in our country, more and more the temptation is to downplay the Bible. 
and to just try to uh, be at peace with people. Uh, Not really engaged, like Carrie said, engaged in such a way that we're actually having to speak the truth in love and actually um, possibly, as a result, coming into conflict with people because we're actually holding to a standard that is not common and is not popular. And yet it's so very important for us to do this because Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there's two ways to live your life. You can live your life like the man who builds his life, or excuse me, builds his house on the rock, or you can live in such a way that you build your house on the sand. And regardless of whether you build your house on the rock or on the sand, you're going to have winds and flood and storms that hit your life. And actually, the greatest storm of all is going to be the final judgment of God. That is the real storm that's going to be something we all must face. And the Lord Jesus says it makes a difference where you are grounded. And he says, um, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." And so for the Lord Jesus, he would say the real fundamental issue is, are we willing to be different in the sense that we build our house on the rock of his word rather than just the sand of whatever else is our option? Other people's opinion, whatever we want to do, what is our life going to be built on? And obviously, uh, the storm that Daniel was going to go through, the storm of what am I going to do now that uh, this law is going to be passed, was a test, which would expose really uh, where he was. Well, so first of all, we have to recognize that part of the story, an important part of the story is that Daniel was committed to a standard that everyone else around him was not committed to. The second part of the story has to do with the fact that we can expect our standards as Christians to be tested, and we need to be ready for that test. Annie's home from uh, Masters this week, and um, obviously when you think about school or college, It's a great metaphor for life in various ways. Part of that is that school is about learning, and it has tests that are involved. And uh, to some degree, uh, the learning that you do is to help prepare you for the tests that you will have to take. And that's exactly what we see happening here, is that Daniel's faith was going to be tested. It's going to be shown whether or not he was really building his life on what he said he was, or not. So in verse 6 it says, Then these commissioners and uh, satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius lived forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. And so you've got these other officials who want to get rid of Daniel, they go to the king, and they, in a sense, they flatter the king. They say, you know what? We think it would be a great way, in a sense, to honor you by you making a law. And you make that law in such a way that it says no one can look to any other god or any other person except you for what they need for a whole month. And then everyone will know that really that's where... Uh, 
their security lies and that's where their resources lie. It's, it's, it's a way for people to really be brought to know that you're the one who's really providing all that they need, which is the classic statement of government or the state. Look to me and I will meet all your needs. And so that's exactly what they tempted the king to do was to enact this law that would basically for 30 days say it is illegal for you to rely on anyone or anything else, to petition anyone or anything else um, other than going to the king for what you need. Now, obviously, there probably were some parameters on what kinds of requests they were going to ask. It doesn't, doesn't mean you couldn't ask your wife to bake some bread or anything like that. But there were certain things I'm sure this law said that they would need to look to the king for. And as Matthew Henry said, it was basically a law saying you could not apply for relief from anyone but the king. And Calvin would say what was happening was they were crafting a law that in principle would say that the king was going to be God for a month. He was substituting himself in the place of God. And Calvin goes on to say that if anyone could enter into the hearts of kings who would find scarcely one in a hundred who does not despise everything divine, which means he doesn't like any competitors. Uh, Kings and people in authority uh, generally like it if you look to them for what you need because that increases their power and their control and secures their place. And so all of this appealed to Darius very, very much. And then they also craft a death that would be something that people would really fear, like being cast into a lion's den where you are torn to pieces by lions. That would be a fearful kind of death, not, not the kind of death that most of us would pick. And then on top of all that, they say... And let's make sure we handle this the way that we typically do with laws among the Medes and the Persians. And let's say that there's no way you can go back on this, which will emphasize how serious we are about getting you the glory that you deserve. And the king says, wow, it sounds like a great thing. That sounds like a politically savvy thing to do. And so he agrees uh, to do that. And so what we need to think about is that Uh, in many ways, this kind of thing has already begun to happen in our own country in terms of things that are being done that are beginning to bump up against what we think is right or not personally and what we think is right or not as Christians. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. I think in our country, we're a little more surprised by it because we've had so much freedom. And yet, Around the world and throughout history, Christians often had their commitment to the Word of God tested over and over and over again. Their commitment to the standard that they were truly going to live by tested over and over again. And so we have to be ready for ways in which our commitment to what is right and to God's Word will be challenged and be tested. There's a story in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 13 that has always irritated me. And there's a, there's a character in this story. There are two prophets in the story. One prophet is from Judah. God sends him to Israel. Israel's begun to worship the golden calves under Jeroboam. And God sends his prophet from Judah to Israel to condemn what they're doing. And he tells this prophet, God tells this prophet from Judah, don't eat there, drink there, don't stay there. Uh, go there and you know prophesy and then go back home a different way. Well, he does that, and then this other old prophet living in Israel hears about it, and he says, uh, I'm going to go find that guy. And so before the prophet, the first prophet, could get back to Judah, the old prophet finds him and says, you know what? God told me you need to stay and eat and drink right here in Israel before you go home. And so the first prophet, number one, goes home with the second prophet, number two, and they eat and drink. And then the old prophet says at the end of the meal, God comes on him and says, you're going to die because you disobeyed what I said. The first prophet gets up and leaves and he's killed by a lion. 
And the lion and the donkey he was riding on stand beside the man. The lion doesn't even kill the donkey, just kills the man. They stand there, and it's a testimony to God's judgment on this prophet who did what God told him to initially, but did not do all that God told him to. And I've always been irritated at the old prophet for lying to the first prophet. Why did you do that? And actually, if you read the story closely, it appears that he did that because he wanted to see if the prophet was really telling the truth. And it was a way of trying to confirm whether or not God's word was going to take place, which I don't think justified the lying, but I think that was the purpose of it. But it's just another lion story about whether or not I'm going to follow what God says or I'm going to listen to what other people say. And the, the warning is to simply listen to what other people say besides what God says is a, is a life-threatening thing. It's not a life-threatening thing to do what God says in the ultimate sense, but it is a life-threatening thing to listen to people instead of listening to God. Well, the next section here in Daniel, verses 10 through 15, highlights um, what Daniel did in response to um, the edict that he heard about. Um, And essentially what is going on here is that Daniel is having to deal with the consequences of being misunderstood and misrepresented. Yesterday, someone on our trip to uh, Big Bear uh, quoted from uh, a kids program that we enjoy or did enjoy, uh, Jungle Jam. There's a character there, a monkey, Millard the Monkey, who says, I hate it when you misquote me. And I've always thought about that because that so sums up the way many of us feel when we think we're being misrepresented. We're being misquoted. You're you're implying that I said something that I didn't really say, that you're implying that I did something that I didn't really do, and I hate it when I am misrepresented. And I think most of us can identify with that. We don't like being misrepresented, misunderstood, and yet that's exactly what happens here with Daniel. Remember the story of Charles Spurgeon and his wife? One of my favorite stories where they sell eggs, and... Um, their family and relatives um, can't understand why they won't just give them free eggs, but they make them pay for the eggs. And they think, you guys are so selfish and so greedy that you won't even give away eggs to your own relatives and your own friends. Well, you find out after the fact that there was a reason why they wouldn't give them away because they were selling them to support some widows. And they were following the injunction that don't let your... Uh, left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so they were doing what they considered to be the right thing, even when they were misunderstood, misrepresented by those around them. And so we see that very kind of thing happening here as well. So in verse 10 it says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is the, excuse me, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, and to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even... Until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statutes which the king establishes may be changed. In verse 10, it says, When Daniel knew that the document was signed, which means Daniel knew 
that his fate was sealed, so to speak. He knew that if he continued to do what he was accustomed to do, something that he had always done, prayed three times a day, would go up upstairs and open the windows so that people could see what he was doing if they were looking for it. He would open the windows toward Jerusalem and pray toward Jerusalem, just like Solomon had encouraged the people to do. And he knew that if he did that, eventually they would see him and eventually he would face the lions. There was no doubt in his mind. He knew he knew what the law of the Medes and the Persians was. He knew that it could not be changed. He knew what he was going to face if he did that. And so he had to be courageous. He had to be um, willing to risk that in order to do what he knew was right. He had to fight cowardice. And he had to basically offer his life as a sacrifice. When he knelt down to pray, he was saying, Lord, I give my life to you. Because I can imagine that very, very soon they're going to be coming for me. But I'm going to continue to do what you've called me to do. It's interesting, the whole idea of um, him opening the the windows toward Jerusalem. Uh, Calvin talks about that, and he just makes this side note where he says, you know what, why did Daniel do that? Well, he probably did that to help him in his praying. And and Calvin talks about the fact that uh, we all need stimulants, stimulants in our praying because we tend to be so sluggish and, and slow to pray and fall asleep when we pray, and all kinds of things like that. And so Calvin says it was probably a stimulant. It was a way to keep him engaged in his prayer. He focused on Jerusalem, being in a foreign land. And Calvin says we should do everything we can to encourage ourselves to pray and to stay awake when we do so. If that means a cup of coffee or whatever it is, do what you have to do. And he highlights the fact, or many have highlighted the fact, that um, Daniel knelt when the common uh, posture was to stand, actually, for Jewish people. They would stand and pray and hold up their arms. Um, But that doesn't mean they didn't ever fall on their face or kneel. And obviously, in this case, um, Daniel knelt. And as Matthew Henry said, it was a begging posture. It makes you wonder what he might have been begging for it, especially at that point. Obviously, he did that every day. That was his custom. But especially when he knew that that law had been signed, you kind of wonder what he might have been begging for, asking for. And there's every reason to believe that he was asking for grace to face the lions. And maybe even asking that God would deliver him from the lions. I think that's what I'd be asking for. And he was a man just like you and I. He wasn't a superman. He wasn't someone that thought, oh, facing the lines is no big deal. I can do that. No. Um, He probably had a lump in his throat. He might have had some sweat on his brow, even as he prayed and asked God for what he needs. Well, all of this is going on, and obviously... Daniel is suffering because he's being misrepresented by these uh, officials who go to the king and they say, uh, Daniel disregards you. Daniel's this exile. He's probably, you know, he's a foreigner. He's a a slave as a result of conquest. You know, he's probably a secret uh, rebel. He probably is going to be out to overtake you. You know, if you exalt him to... Second place in the kingdom, he'll probably try to take you out. Those are the implications. They're saying he cannot be trusted. And see, you can see that he cannot be trusted because of what he's doing. The reality is that wasn't what was going on in Daniel's heart at all. And we see that reflected in in the latter part of the chapter. Obviously, the Lord Jesus was greatly misunderstood on the cross. You read through what it says in Matthew 27. People were coming by as Jesus hangs on the cross and they were saying things like, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He was and is the son of God, but he didn't come down. They said, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus didn't come down to prove that he was the son of God. He didn't come down from the cross in order to prove that God delighted in him. But it didn't appear that God delighted in him. It appeared that God was cursing him, that he was cursed of God. Daniel was looked at in a certain way. The Lord Jesus was looked at in a certain way. But in both cases, they were doing what honored God, what pleased God, and they both were delighting God by what they did. But it wasn't looked at that way. Well, Daniel, if we look at verses 16 through 23 is cast into the lion's den. And uh, as we read on, we'll see that in this part of the story, we see that Daniel is vindicated. And the, the reality is, all of us long to be vindicated. How many times have you heard someone say, Ha! I was right. Whatever, was, whatever situation it might be, whether it's regard to what something was going to happen, Uh, down the line, whether it was in a game that you were competing in. We've all heard people say, ha, see, I was right. And we feel like uh, vindication many times is important. That isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it is a bad thing, just wanting to be vindicated, be a pride thing. But there is something in us where we want the truth to come out at some point that that we're not foolish, that we're not stupid, that, that we're not just throwing our lives away by giving our lives to Jesus, that we're not uh, crazy to be willing to die for the, for the name of Jesus. We want to be vindicated. And so we see that kind of uh, heart um, shown, I think, in a sense, in light of what happens to Daniel. In verse 16 it says, Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And so we see Daniel's cast into the lion's den, Um, an unlawful punishment for an unlawful law. Um, In the end, Darius gave in to the pressure, just like Pilate gave in to the pressure to condemn Jesus when he found him innocent. Darius gives in to the pressure as well and casts Daniel into the lion's den. And yet he says, when it says in verse 16, uh, your God will deliver you, it's written in such a way that it could also be translated, I hope your God will deliver you because he ends up showing up at the den and and shouts out, has your God delivered you? Not that he was confident that God would do that. He was hoping that God would do that because he didn't want to lose a good administrator. And so we see here that uh, Daniel's thrown into a lion's den and evidently this was an underground uh, cavern that was created there was a hole in the ground where you could throw in food and you could drop people into it um, uh, so that the lions could attack them. Um, it was sealed just like the tomb of Jesus was sealed. It was sealed so that no one could uh, alter what was going to take place there. 
And so the king, after a sleepless night, comes back and he um, tries to find out or comes to find out whether or not God had delivered Daniel. And remember, the king threw Daniel into the lion's den. And in response to the king, he says, O king, live forever. That was a very common way of saying, I hope you have a long, prosperous, blessed life. Matthew Henry says about that, um, Daniel does not reproach him, but has heartily forgiven him. It was wrong for the king to throw him into the lion's den. He could have easily been very angry at the king and wished that the king would be thrown into the lion's den. But instead, he wishes that God would bless him. Calvin says, The holy prophet desired nothing else except the king's welfare, which he prays for. There is no doubt that Daniel heartily wished the king the enjoyment of long life and happiness. That takes the grace of God to desire that for someone who throws you to the lions for his own political expediency. It's just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace earlier in Daniel. Daniel says, my God has shown up, he sent his angel, and I'm unharmed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unharmed by the fire. Daniel is unharmed by the lions. And he says, because I I was found innocent before God and before you. He says, I have committed no crime. Now, there'll be a lot of people say, oh, yes, you did. You disobeyed the king's law. Daniel says, I committed no crime because that law was not a lawful law. That was an unlawful law. Calvin would say, earthly princes lay aside all their power when they rise up against God. So if you try to legislate something that forbids the worship of God, that's an unlawful law. And the only way to obey God is to disobey the unlawful law. And that's what Daniel does. And that's why he says, I haven't sinned against God and I haven't broken any legitimate law. In our day and time, it's very important to make a distinction between lawful laws and unlawful laws. Because as tyranny increases in our world, there will be more and more unlawful laws in all kinds of ways. Well, Daniel uh, goes on to say uh, that he is delivered because he trusted in his God. And you might read that as if it meant that because he had great faith, God did something great for him. Um, it's better to understand that as God decided in this case to deliver Daniel for the testimony that it would be to others. Because the reality is God doesn't rescue everyone from the lions. There are plenty of Christians who died in the arena in the first century at the hands of the lions. But God does it when it is best all things considered, which brings me to the last point that I need to wrap up here with. And that is the fact that God intends there to be fruit from our suffering. Um, All of us suffer to some degree or another in just doing things like cleaning our house or mowing our yard. And yet we have to do that over and over again. And we think, wow, I just get tired of the lack of fruit from cleaning my house or or mowing my yard because before long the weeds are there again and the dirt is there again, the dust is there and it just seems like there's no lasting fruit. Well, the reality is whatever um, suffering God puts us through as his children, he intends it for lasting fruit as a lasting testimony to him and for the good of others. In verse 24 it says, the king gave Then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom 
Men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So the accusers suffer the fate that they wished upon Daniel. It's interesting that um, in this story, what we see in the wrap-up, and I'll just focus on the very end of the story, is that Darius basically issues an edict glorifying God throughout his empire and magnifies the God of Israel and gives testimony to his greatness. And it says that uh, Daniel actually enjoyed success in these pagan administrations, which um, there are two things to highlight about that. Number one, why would God save Daniel from the lions? Part of it was so that he could be a blessing to the people of Israel who were still in exile and who were making the transition back to the promised land. As Calvin would say, uh, here we may perceive how God cared for his prophet not because of any private reason, but as an aid to the wretched captives and exiles. So that Daniel could be in a position of authority and influence to bring blessing on the Jewish people. And not only that, from that day forward, people would look at Daniel differently. They already saw him as someone who had an extraordinary spirit, and now they would look at him as, that's the guy who was thrown into the lion's den and came out alive. That guy right there. He would be a walking testimony to the power of God for the rest of his life. And so God has all kinds of good designs for putting us in the lion's den, for putting us through trials and tribulations in various ways. So let me just wrap up real quick here with some application. Is it important to be able to face the lions in our own lives, to be willing to face death, death of all kinds? And there's two things to be said about that. Denying Christ is not the unpardonable sin. Peter denied Christ three times and was still forgiven. He also repented of his denying Christ, which is an important part of his story. The tension that we find in Scripture is also it is true, as it says in Revelation, that they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And so that we are to have a kind of faith in Jesus that is willing to die for Jesus. And so is denying Christ in certain situations the unpardonable sin? No. But is it a sin? Yes. And we should pray for grace to be faithful and willing to die for Christ, to glorify him. And so what should we take away? Number one, God loves his people and can deliver them out of any situation. He can keep us from going into the lion's den. He can keep the lions from eating us. And even if we die at the hands of the lions... He will raise us from the dead. He will bring us out of that and glorify his name. Secondly, God gives us examples to follow. Examples in scripture where people were willing to die for God. And we need to pray that we would be willing to die for God. Even before we get into that place of having to make that decision, we need to pray for grace to live a faithful life like Daniel did to seek to do what is right in every situation, whatever it costs me, so that when it might actually come down to my having to decide between Christ and denying Christ in my life, that I'll be prepared to do what's right, even when it will cost me. And that's where regular communion with God comes in. Like I said, Daniel was probably praying for grace to face the lions. And God chose to rescue him from the lions, but he doesn't always do that. 
But regardless of what he does, we need grace to face the lions. And that's what Jesus could say in Luke. um, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We're to pray for strength, for courage, to even lay down our lives, to die in whatever way we need to, to be faithful to God. And then finally, it's important to realize that Jesus is the ultimate Daniel. Jesus is the ultimate one who faced the lions. He faced, he, he knew what, the, what stood in front of him at Jerusalem, and that, yet he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to be tortured, and he was going to die. And he wasn't just going to die as a man. He was going to suffer the wrath of God. And he prayed, just like Daniel prayed. And you can imagine Daniel praying, let this cup pass from me. And God says, okay. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. And God says, no. God, let the cup for Daniel to pass. He was not eaten by the lions. Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. And God says, no. But in both cases, God did what was best for both Daniel, Jesus, and others through their lives. And we will celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will give thanks that Jesus was told no when he asked, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, let it pass. And God says, there is no other way. And Jesus says, then thy will be done. He drank the cup. He faced the lions. We know that the Bible says Satan is like a a lion, a roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour. He was ready to, to devour Jesus then. But Jesus was raised up out of the lion's den to be Lord of lords and King of kings. God rescued him, not from death, but from ultimate destruction that he might give us life. Let's pray. Father, we we pray for encouragement because your word uh, has been given to us that we might be encouraged, that we might be given courage to do the right thing day in and day out, even when it costs us, and to be in the habit of doing the right thing day in, day out, even if it costs us, that we might be prepared for when we might have to lay down our lives one day for you. Help us to pray for grace. Help us not to neglect our fellowship with you day in and day out. Help us to read your word. Help us to pray. Help us to, for, ask for, to ask for grace to live to glorify you and to do what is right and pleasing to you in every situation, even when it costs us, and in part so that we might be ready if we do actually one day have to lay down our lives to glorify your name. Help us indeed to follow the example of Jesus, but most of all, help us to rest in and rejoice in the ultimate Daniel, you, Lord Jesus, in light of all that you've done for us. Please help us to receive your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.